0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. For millions of Coloradans, the weekend brought a new reality. In six metro counties, an easing of stay-at-home. But Denver Mayor Michael Hancock says the region's not out of the woods.
1: We will need to prepare for future outbreaks. And that is why testing, contact tracing, and procurement of additional PPE are so important. The mayor takes your questions and
0: ours. Does he expect the pandemic will leave behind empty storefronts and vacant office space, a larger homeless population? Then, more on that term contact tracing, the rush to hire and train investigators who can track hotspots. Plus, the state was planning for a pandemic 20 years ago, so should it have been better prepared? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and there was an important transition over the weekend. For nearly half the state's population, 2.7 million people saw stay-at-home orders lifted in favor of safer at home. Among other things, this means certain businesses now have more flexibility to operate in Adams, Arapahoe, Boulder, Broomfield, Denver, and Jefferson counties. What could this spell for the spread of COVID-19 and for people's livelihoods? Among the questions we'll ask Denver's mayor, Michael Hancock. His is a city, of course, where not only a lot of people live, but in normal times also work. Mayor, welcome back
1: ryan good to hear your voice i'm glad to be with you this morning
0: video that has gone viral shows a jam-packed restaurant in castle rock on sunday no distancing no masks that violates public health orders Uh, the world knows about it because a journalist captured it on camera did you get reports of anything like that happening in denver are you generally pleased with what you saw and heard on the first weekend
1: no Ryan I saw those images on on the news as well and and no we didn't we have not had any reports of those sort of things happening here in Denver and I got to tell you how you know pleased i am with the uh, denver uh, businesses and and you know um the people of denver who really have complied for the most part with our with our uh requests our orders um you know I have to say that there are in- instances where people maybe are not wearing their masks when they should but the, for the most part people are complying and that's really been the reason why we can begin the process of considering reopening the city on a very slow rolling basis, Uh, one that is thoughtful, uh, one that uh, takes in consideration first uh, the priority of keeping people healthy and safe. And it was real disappointing to see what happened in Castle Rock. I hope the public health officials take the right steps to uh, send a very strong message that that is the sort of thing that cannot be tolerated as we try to keep people safe.
0: And so if you saw something like that in Denver, I imagine the enforcement response based on what you just said there would be swift.
1: It has to be. You have to send a message that this is not about um, anything than protecting the health of people in your city and your county. And uh, that was disappointing. You know, as I've watched uh, first responders um, really put their lives on the line to protect people, to help and serve all of us, Um, if I've seen uh, essential employees show up and do everything they could to protect themselves as well as uh, their coworkers. I've seen neighbors as I did this weekend walking in grocery stores. Uh, I was thanking people for wearing their mask. If I just incidentally happen to walk by them, thank you for wearing your mask because them wearing their mask protects me. And um, so, you know, yeah, what I saw as everyone else did on that uh, news report out of Castle Rock, very disappointing. And I think the county has to send a very swift and strong message that this is not, uh, you know, willfully disregarding the orders will not be tolerated.
0: You have said that easing Denver's stay at home order hinged on increased testing and more contact tracing. That's essentially the gumshoe work of tracking down how COVID nineteen might be spreading. Fundamentally, is that about looking for hot spots and flare ups? Is that your intention?
1: It, it's Yes, it is. It's about making sure that we know how the virus is impacting in the community. So, you, if we're if we're stepping up um, the the um, capacity to test, um, and we hope to continue to remove barriers of people accessing those tests, uh, you know, as quickly as possible, um, with a couple of techniques and strategies, including putting a mobile testing unit out into the community and getting to people who can't travel to um, their clinic or doctor, or removing the requirement for people to have a doctor's order to get a tests. Um, as we do those things, we can expect that the number of uh, presumptive positives will rise. Now, the key is for us with the contact tracing, which is equally as important, is to be able to track and to box in this virus. Who were you in contact with? Let's make sure we're notifying those individuals and then we can begin to, again, to blunt the, the transmission uh, of the virus uh, between the folks that we, you've had contact with. Uh, yeah, the whole goal is to find those hotspots, uh, you know, to, to address them as quickly as possible and to make sure that we've the the spread of the virus.
0: On Twitter, Ethan Reed asks, do you believe Denver could potentially be hit hard with another wave of outbreaks this year?
1: I think every community stands that, uh, Possibility that that could happen, but the whole goal is to make sure that you have uh, the testing and contact tracing in place, um, because you want to be able to know where the virus is and to be able to address it very quickly. To remove access, you know, barriers to accessing the testing, critically important. And then we roll out the reopening of the city and the operations of the city in a very thoughtful, methodical, systemic, uh, systematic, excuse me, um, process, so that we are slow and we're monitoring the metrics necessary to understand if we're seeing spikes, and we follow the advice of our public health administration. Yeah, exactly.
0: To tell me what yeah. indicators you watch to say we need to tighten back up. Is it uh, yeah. a question of hospitalizations?
1: Is it... Well- I'm go sorry. Go ahead. No, There's you you go ahead, Mayor. <laughs> it's, it's all those things, and I know you're going with it. And it, and it, you know the first uh, that we have to do is to make sure that it's not about politics, and nothing trumps the the protection of the people in your community. Um, and so the public health administrators are uh, the folks that I lean on heavily uh, for advice and guidance and counsel on these decisions. Um, and uh, what they've told me is that they will look at a, a, a diversity of metrics, including hospitalizations, uh, the testing, of course, how many people are we testing. How many people are we seeing uh, with presumptive positive results, hospitalizations, and obviously, you know, the the other end of that being the uh, fatalities as a result of of, uh, the disease or the virus in our community. If we see five consecutive days of dramatic spikes in those uh, categories, then we will move into, uh, um, you know, Manage, again, the the, uh, shutdown of the community. We'll continue to monitor those on a very close basis, on a rolling basis, but also to be smart. And the only way we avoid that is, again, people following the orders, uh, washing their hands, wearing masks. Uh, keeping physical and social distancing um, requirements at the forefront and doing everything we can to make sure that we are being smart. If you're feeling sick, do not go to work, stay at home. If you don't have to go out, uh, if you can work from home, that's even better. And uh, making sure that we are able to get a hold and continue to manage the the spread of the virus.
0: Now, we've talked about testing in general. Twitter user Tulsi Gabber uh, wonders if Denver plans to make antibody testing a part of its long-term plan for reopening. That is, see Being who's had COVID-19 and who hasn't, and just a few provisos here, uh, that testing has so far been unreliable and there is no real proof of immunity at this point or how long immunity might last. But do you see antibody testing as key to this? Let's just be specific.
1: Yes, it is. It is very key to it, and uh, everything I've heard from public health uh, administrators and medical um, professionals is that you you have to have anybody. And and as we continue to learn more about our body's response to this, and whether or not we become immune after um, having uh, contact with the virus or having the virus itself in our in our system, um, we'll continue to learn more. But the reality is is that you have to have um, both types of testing in the system um, to best manage the system and learn about this virus as well, because so, we can feel there... very much learning about the virus. Is
0: there much antibody testing going on in the city and county of Denver at this point?
1: There are some institutions, yes. Uh, National Jewish Health is doing yeah. a lot of antibody testing um, that I'm aware of. Uh, St. Uh, Luke's Presbyterian Hospital is doing a lot of antibody testing. There are a lot of uh, private uh, companies that are doing a lot of antibody testing for uh, companies as employees are getting ready to go back. So there's a, there's some testing, antibody testing, going on in the city. Uh, In
0: Denver, Safer at Home really changes nothing for restaurants and bars. They're either closed or doing carryout. Um, Libraries and gyms remain shuttered. All of this is true through at least May 26th. Uh, Mayor Michael Hancock, can you tell us anything about your plans for their reopening? And, And maybe we unpack that individually. Restaurants, libraries, gyms.
1: Yeah, Ryan. Great question. You know, as we've said from the beginning, the the whole idea of the show, shut it. Excuse me. Stay at home order was about. Uh, flattening the epic curve and making sure that we can get uh, control of the spread of the virus in our communities. And so, when you you couple that with social and physical distancing, we had a you see what's happened in Denver. We begin to see a flattening of the curve and a, begin to see kind of a, a controlling a management of the, the the transmission. Right now, we don't necessarily have the strategies in place where um, more multitudes of people can come together, like restaurants, like we saw in Castle Rock this weekend. Um, and so we. We are working on almost a daily basis with the restaurant industry, uh, those places where you have congregate uh, gathering of people, um, to kind of come up with a strategy that we could create an opportunity for those restaurants and other places like that to open up, and people can keep their physical social distancing, as well as to make sure they receive an exemplary service, which is very important. Okay, so those, so we, those we,
0: conversations we, continue. It sounds like you don't day. have any specific date at this point or a right. plan, for instance, you, you know, to reopen lunch libraries, which are fairly essential for some, right. and, and, and gyms.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we want to get them open sooner than later, uh, but we got to make sure that the right protocols are in place.
0: Okay. Do you expect to see the economic scars of this pandemic in empty storefronts and vacant office space across the city? Is that the yeah. the vision you hold in your head of the reality of this?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, we're beginning the, uh, the process of really trying to manage the economic impact of uh, this uh, pandemic and its impact on in Denver and the state of Colorado. There will be some casualties, um, as I've uh, learned from uh, talking with the restaurant uh, businesses and small businesses, there will be some businesses that will not open up. Uh, again, they're gone permanently, and uh, that's unfortunate because obviously that was never something that we want to see happen, um, but we had to respond to the health crisis that we were facing. Um, the city of Denver itself, uh, we know it's going to be years, probably three, four years before we rebound completely from this challenge. The airport um, is projecting, forecasting three, four years before getting back to um, you know at least to where we were prior to the pandemic. Uh, so the reality is is that this is going to be a journey, um, um, and we're going to a marathon. Excuse me, we're going to have to take our time, be smart about it, and uh, and recognize that we're coming from the depths that are even deeper than what we saw in the Great Recession as we try to rebuild this economy. But that's also why it's important for the federal government to play its role in helping cities and states to recover from this disruption in our economy. Cities represent 91% of our GDP in this nation, and there is no national recovery if you don't get cities recovering um, first and foremost.
0: Are you lobbying Washington for some specific municipal support?
1: Absolutely. You know, there's another... piece of legislation, stimulus bill pending before Congress right now, the House of Representatives. I'm working with mayors across the nation. I'm on the phone daily with mayors. Mayors, you know, Garcetti in L.A., de Blasio in New York, Fisher in Louisville, Kentucky, Turner in Houston, uh, you know, Johnson in Dallas. The reality is that we recognize that for no fault of our own, because of this pandemic, cities, economies were devastated, are devastated. And you got to know that, uh, you know, Denver was doing really well prior to this pandemic. And now, you know, we're looking at mass on employment, companies closing, and our revenue streams greatly disrupted, and uh, we want to get cities up and running. It's the first sign of a recovery economically in this nation. Again, 91% of your GDP in this nation comes from cities, and if I, you know, the president and Congress are wise, they'll do everything they can to get metropolitan economies up and roaring again because they know that when they roar, the nation roars economically.
0: Mayor, as you describe it, the economic effects of the pandemic will be severe and long-term. I think it's uh, likely that we could see homelessness increase. And on the subject of homelessness, the Centers for Disease Control recommends not clearing encampments during the pandemic, unless individual housing units are available. Um, Even with extra shelter space and hotel rooms, your own housing department has said Thousands more hotel rooms are needed, yet your administration is clearing homeless camps. Why not follow the CDC on this?
1: Uh, Ryan, you know, first of all, the CDC was uh, not an order, it's guidance. Um, And so we we did uh, thoroughly um, review and vet the guidance from the CDC. And let me correct you one thing. We're not clearing the homeless encampments. Uh, We have gone in to clean them uh, because they present a public health threat. And the public health department in the city has identified threats. And so we went in to clean um, the the encampments uh, for the safety and the health of those uh, individuals who are in the encampments. And so um, it's very important that we not allow for public health threats to uh, exist, even in the midst of a pandemic, because one, we can continue, they can exacerbate the spread of the virus. And we are seeing the spreading of the virus amongst our homeless community.
0: You, you talk about the CDC's uh, guidance. There's, there's lots of guidance that you follow from the CDC. Why have you uh, taken a different approach to this particular guidance?
1: We didn't take a different approach. In fact, we stopped uh, clearing um, the encampments. As you know, prior to the pandemic, if an encampment uh, came up, we followed protocols to give notification. Then we would move in and, and we, would, um, you know, we would clean up and, and break up the encampment for the public health and safety of the, the uh, individuals. What we've done in this situation is that we've not cleared the encampments, uh, but we will. Uh, When we feel that there's a public health threat, and as deemed by the uh, public health administrator, we will go in and clean the encampments. Unfortunately, um, we've seen certain encampments deteriorate substantially in public health and safety conditions, and we just cannot and will not tolerate that in Denver.
0: To allow people to get outside and maintain social distancing, Denver has closed some streets to through traffic. And tens of thousands of people are using these streets for walking and biking Um, I just want to note that late last week, Seattle's mayor announced that he was permanently closing 20 miles of streets to automobile traffic so that residents can exercise. Uh, On Twitter, John Rickey wants to know if Denver will do the same.
1: Yeah, some will open, some will not. I mean, we're going to take a look at this uh, pilot that we've uh, uh, rolled out here in Denver in terms of uh, shutting down some streets. You know, Denver was one of the first cities in the country to do this as part of the uh, response to the pandemic. Um, Seattle may have been a bit ahead of Denver, and so uh, we'll take a look at the experiment, see how it goes for us. I will share with everyone one street that we did permanently close is the street of uh, the Bannock Street between Colfax and 14th Street. It's being turned into a city plaza right now. Uh, so that's something we can look forward to to begin to really enjoy but we do find some benefit in some of the management of the uh, operation some streets in the city we're going to take a serious look at uh, that uh, how that experiment uh, has gone so I celebrate our Department of Transportation infrastructure under the leadership of Eulis Cleckley who really took this idea and uh, vetted it and managed it and rolled it out for the people at the beginning of this uh, challenge in our city
0: what I don't hear is a full-throated embrace of a, pr- ah, of a permanent yeah. change, of a permanent change. To those who are longing yeah. for that, what do you tell them?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, we got to know how it impacts uh, our city, um, and that's what we're doing. It's a pilot, and we are looking at how it impacts. Obviously, again, Seattle may have been in front of Denver in terms of the timing of this, but we were one of the first cities, and uh, once we take a look at the data and what will we'll work, um, obviously, we advocate for p- pedestrians and people getting out and exercising and enjoying the great fresh air, and if we can do that with good balance, allowing for good traffic flow for those areas that have uh, density in terms of traffic, then we'll, we'll make it happen.
0: I want to- Talk to you about parents because it strikes me that with the change of orders, they may be asked back to work and yet their kids still can't be in the classroom. It's a huge childcare issue, especially for families with kids who are, you know, too old for daycare but too young to be left home alone. Mm-hmm. Is there anything at all that a city can do to address this?
1: I appreciate that Ryan. You know, we there's still a lot of uh, concerns and a great deal of hesitation by operators uh, to continue to operate their facilities uh because, you know, again, it's it's about how this uh virus affects our children and how it spreads amongst our children and so to your point it has kind of limited the number or the amount of uh, seats uh, for in child care but there's we're limited in terms of how we can respond as a city the uh, Children's Affairs Division in the city of Denver has convened a child care task force that has school teachers and early childhood uh, providers and preschool programs and non-profit agencies coming together to try to address this issue uh, but there's something there's an opportunity here and I think this is the uh, if there is a, a uh um, silver lining in, in the midst of this pandemic it has not only been to see how we as a people responded to take care of each other, but see how businesses and employees have uh, figured out that, you know what, we can probably do more uh, around the areas of remote working, and particularly as uh, families are challenged with lack of classrooms and childcare availability on the other side of the epic curve, is for employers to really take a strategic look at how they can stagger their employees physically inside the workplace and maybe continue to allow folks to work remotely. At the city of Denver, 90 Percent of our employees worked remotely during this uh, stay-at-home order, and uh, we have learned something really good, and that is uh, we can have our employees continue to be productive, deliver the services of the people, while allowing some of our employees to work remotely. And we're going to um, we're going to uh, extend that opportunity going forward, and we're going to master it and uh, create a new opportunity for the City of Denver.
0: All right. So it sounds like there is a limit to what a city can do. You've right. no doubt heard, uh, Mayor Hancock, that Denver Health doled out millions of dollars in bonuses to more than a hundred of its administrators. And this was just as the medical center asked its employees to cut hours and take unpaid time off. Um, These were performance bonuses for meeting goals in 2019. Denver Health has said it will do a global review of its compensation plan. Do you think that's enough? Do, Do you want more action taken as a result of this?
1: you know i they need to do the review i certainly support that and uh, i've spoken with uh, not only the executive uh, the ceo of the, air, the the uh, hospital but members of the board um this was a very Unwise decision by the board and by the administration uh, to execute these bonuses uh, at this time. Um, clearly, it's something that they should have been wiser about. Um, the timing was absolutely awful, and uh, I was, did not miss my words when I spoke with them. And um, it just, uh, you know, something that they're going to have to work to deal with and regain the trust of not only the public but I think of their employees who uh, may feel a bit. Uh, um, frustrated by what has happened here, so the reality is yes, they they're 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 going to be working to come up with strategies to respond and respond appropriately, even more in depth about this. Um, you know, it's just a difficult situation, and then we're going to continue to monitor how they address it as we continue to go forward. You know, we have a, a governmental uh, partnership with them. Um, the city uh, makes a tremendous investment every year in the hospital, and um, and I'm responsible for appointing members of the board, and so to be able to very clearly. And candidly share with them my disappointment and the wisdom or lack thereof in this decision uh, was very important to me.
0: In just the last few moments, would you like to see a change of leadership at Denver Health?
1: That's not what I'm advocating. I okay. think Dr. Woodstein is a, a capable leader, a uh, very bad decision, um, at least in terms of allowing these bonuses to go forward. And uh, she recognizes that and she's uh, working to rectify.
0: Mayor, I thank you for your time. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Ryan. Take care now.
0: That is Denver Mayor Michael Hancock. Today's the first weekday. The city and county is under Safer at Home, along with five other metro counties. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the public health detectives who will be critical as Colorado reopens these contact tracers. Who are they? Where are they? Are there enough of them? I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News.
2: Colorado Public Radio is committed to covering emerging stories and delving deeply into the details of what's happening now without fear, hype, or compromise. This vital news coverage, as well as CPR's essential music service, is made possible through community support. If you're a member of CPR, thank you. Your support ensures impartial journalism, statewide coverage, and an informed public. Help sustain this community resource. Donate at CPR.org.
0: Before the break, we heard from Denver Mayor Michael Hancock in part about using contact tracers to prevent serious outbreaks of COVID-19. And this is also something Governor Jared Polis has emphasized statewide. But it's unclear how Colorado specifically plans to break any chains of transmission. CPR Sam Brash has been looking into this issue. Hi, Sam. Hey, Ryan. Let's start with the importance of contact tracing uh, certainly, based on what we've seen in other countries, I understand it's it's critical to disease containment.
3: Absolutely, uh, epidemiologists reduce disease containment to like kind of a mantra, right? Test, trace, and isolate. That's how countries like Taiwan and New Zealand stopped the initial spread of this new coronavirus before it really got going. Um, But I think it's important to note that contact tracing is also really important on the tail end of disease outbreaks, which is right now here in Colorado. We have fewer cases than we had a few weeks ago. We're starting to reopen. And if you want to prevent second spikes, you need these people who are calling potential disease spreaders and making sure they isolate themselves and don't spread the disease to other people.
0: Okay, how many contact tracers does the state need?
3: Right. Okay. So one report from the National Association of County and City Health Officials, which, by the way, is the best uh, organization I've come across because the acronym is NACHO. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) this organization said the state should have about 15 contact tracers per 100,000 people during regular times. Uh, During a pandemic, they think that rate should double to about 30 per 100,000 people. You do some math. That means Colorado should have a workforce of about 1,740 people. That's a range around that number. Okay. Um, that's about six times the number of contact tracers state officials just estimate work across the state. At the state health departments, at county-level health departments, that's a, that's a guess. That's not a direct survey of county health departments even. And unlike other states, Colorado hasn't publicly announced a big plan to build an army of contact
0: tracers. All right. So the recommendation, given where we are in the pandemic, is uh, just under 1,800 contact tracers. You say we're at about a sixth of that statewide. How does that compare to other states?
3: I mean, I think what you're seeing across these other states is a movement to you know, really hire tons of people. They've, they've made these huge announcements with eye-catching numbers. Just to run through some of them, Massachusetts has already hired 1,000 workers through a collaboration with the nonprofit Partners in Health. Ohio wants 1,750 by June 1st. Washington is building a rapid response team of 1,500. And uh, Governor Gavin Newsom of California really set the pace. He announced an initial goal to build an army of ten 10,000 contact
0: tracers. Chris, this is a time when many are out of work. So one naturally thinks, gosh, is this a way to shift the workforce for Uh a time? Colorado, though, has not publicly announced its plans in terms of numbers. Do I have that right?
3: Yeah. Um, I've talked at length uh, about this to Sarah, and to Sarah Thunberg. She's the head of Colorado's Coronavirus Innovation Tax, uh, Task Force. Sorry, And she told me the state has been increasing its contact tracing force. She said, quote, rather than having a formal hiring target, like saying we need a hundred thousand or a million contact tracers, we want to make sure we can trace every positive case and then follow up with their contacts. Right. Sure. That makes sense. But, um, you know, she says that it means building a COVID response team of about 2000, but that's a loose number depending on funding. So there's not really like a hard goal right now in terms of
0: hiring. Okay, that would put it around the recommendation. But why why not just put out a number? I mean, no one's saying a million contact tracers, but why not just say this is our goal?
3: Yeah, I mean, Thunberg gave me a couple of reasons where she said a hard contact makes more sense in states with centralized public health systems. You know, Colorado does have a statewide public health agency, but it largely supports county level public health departments, which have, you know, the primary authority for disease investigations under state statutes. You know, that being said, Washington, California, they both have decentralized public health systems and hiring goals. So I'm not sure I totally get that point, but that is what she told me. The second one makes more sense to me. It was money. She said that the COVID response team she was talking about, that 2000 number, would cost between $30 and $100 million. And the state just needs federal help to start enacting that plan.
0: Is there that federal help?
3: Um, So the Department of Health and Human Services recently awarded Colorado uh, $10.3 million. uh, And some of that money is meant to start building up contact tracing and testing programs. And while that's helpful, Timberg says it amounts to, quote, a drop in the
0: bucket. A drop in the bucket. You spoke with a woman named Rebecca Lyman. She lives in Westminster, and she's going to train to be a contact tracer. Just tell us a little bit about her.
3: Absolutely. So she's 28 years old. She recently joined one of these state contact tracing teams through a program they set up to hire students uh, to do this work. She hmm. recently just finished an online degree, uh, getting a master's in public health. Um, she's undergone training. She's got a state issue laptop she's got a phone line and she can do all this work from home she says it's a pretty flexible situation and she'll be calling contacts doing interview reporting that information to an online database and then helping those people deal with you know what to do next uh if they've tested positive if they've contacted people how to go get state services and just go about living
4: their
0: lives right that's the picture of what the work is and so are they looking for people with like public health experience or are they looking for anyone who's willing to make the calls
3: Right now, it looks like they're looking for people with public health experience, at least at the state level. They're huh. hiring uh, people like Rebecca, who, who's had you know some training in public health. At the county level, it's a little different. I talked to El Paso County, and they said they've been um, retraining some workers actually from their morgue in contract tracing to help out.
0: From their morgue. Okay. I guess the idea there being uh, to nip this in the bud before the other end of this is is necessary so colorado is expanding contact tracing it's it's just not as bold or flashy as what's happening in california or massachusetts do you think that's the takeaway sam yeah
3: i think so i mean this initial group of 24 students most of these students were from the colorado school of public health and officials say they're planning to add another group of students in the next few weeks weeks so i want to be really clear that this hiring is happening yeah There just doesn't seem to be a lot of, like, you know, a a big goal that's guiding it or a lot of coordination around this
0: plan. Uh, And that, in part, you say, has to do with the fact that uh, there's a lot of local control. There's a lot of this happening, perhaps, uh, to be self-determined by locals. Thanks, Sam, so much for your reporting. Thank you. I know that you'll stay on top of this. It's CPR. Sam Brash reporting on state and local efforts to create teams of contact tracers. To pinpoint and isolate any hotspots of the novel coronavirus, that's as Colorado gradually reopens the economy. If you read emails from the governor's office and state public health officials from earlier this year, you will find little indication they were prepared for the coronavirus pandemic. We know that because CPR's Ben Marcus has spent several weeks going through just those emails. Hi, Ben.
4: Hey, it's uh, good
0: to be back. In in studio, those, those six feet apart, uh, there are a lot of revelations in this story, which you can read at CPR.org. You say February was something of a lost month for the state when it came to preparing for COVID-19. Why do you call it that?
4: And uh, to be fair, it's a lost month for a lot of states and for the federal government. We're talking about a kind of a hundred year disease kind of situation. So few people had firsthand experience with anything quite like this, um, and then you add on top of that, the lack of testing, the fact that some test kits were even faulty. And so the state says, look, we were flying blind. We didn't know the true extent of the problem. Still, we could find no evidence of PPE purchases, personal protective equipment, which would become so critical later on. Um, There was limited testing supply purchases, so about enough for 1,000 tests in late January. and we spent about $2,000 on emails. So from the governor's office, state public health, local public health and county agencies, thousands and thousands of pages of emails. And like
0: th- th- Those were fees CPR paid just to get these public just records. Just to get public
4: records, yeah. They're the most I've ever spent on a project before. And the clearest warning that we found in all of that was on March 2nd from this software developer in Boulder, kind of turned into an environmental activist. Her name is Ning Mosberger-Tang, and she had family in Wuhan, so she had uh-huh. some first-hand experience some distant relatives uh, had even died there Uh, so to her the warning signs were clear based on what she was hearing and what she was reading in the news
0: and that actually bought us probably
2: a month of time to uh, get ready it was just a, a pity that we did not actually take advantage of that extra month to get ready
4: so she, her email eventually makes its way to the head of Colorado's uh, public health and environment uh, department of public health and environment, Jill Hunsaker Ryan. Yeah. And Jill uh, Hunsaker Ryan responds back: the state's ready, don't worry about it. And in fact, around the same time, uh, CDPHE has top-line messaging saying current risk is still low for Coloradans. So this is March second, March third.
0: Given that that was their understanding at the time, or at least what we think with their understanding was based on their emails what what could the state have done
4: so the warning signs to some people seemed really clear right mm-hmm. even though china was being murky about what was going on and even though there weren't any cases in colorado and even though testing was limited the city of Wuhan was still shut down. That's 11 million people. There were draconian measures being taken in China. Yeah, I so, forget.
0: I think we forget how big that city is. Exactly. Yeah. It's
4: massive, twice the size of Colorado in terms of population. And so Vale Health, for instance, um, that was hit very early on in the COVID crisis, yeah. they started buying personal protective equipment supplies in January, long before anybody was thinking that this was going to become uh, a global outbreak, at least to the people that we've talked to. So we talked to Chris Lindley, who's at Vale Health and he explained why it was so important to get those supplies in January.
3: Because we knew that there would be a shortage of masks worldwide if this thing did turn into a pandemic. And the early indications, in certainly in
4: mid-January, uh, uh, and certainly by the beginning of February, was that this thing was going to spread... So the state said they did not buy any personal protective equipment until march when they started making some movements uh, they claimed to us that they didn't have the statutory authority to do that that the money's not just sitting there for large expensive ppe purchases uh, before covid hit colorado apparently they had dismantled a cache of supplies in the denver area and uh, consolidated it into a sub cash in grand junction so the state was left with one stockpile of supplies in grand junction um, You know, this continues to be a concern, these PPE shortages today, even. Nursing homes, hospitals, uh, testers, they need this equipment, right? And... Even as early as February 28th, so before Colorado had its first case, CDPHE's situation reports that we obtained show that they were already seeing shortages out in the community. I
0: mean, it's fascinating the stark contrast between what was happening in Vail, for instance, and what was not happening statewide. But the federal government has the national strategic stockpile for supplies like this to provide to states, right?
4: Yeah, it turns out what the federal government had to give was pretty small. Um, Some people theorized that they hadn't replenished it since the H1N1 outbreak. Uh, And so, the local public health departments that I talked to went through that very quick. And I will say, real quickly, Chris Lindley praised the state's response um, as they kind of snapped into uh, response mode in March, and he said they did benefit at Vail Health from some PPE in the Vail Valley.
0: On the subject of testing, we've known that that's been a problem really from the beginning. What did you learn about just how crippling the lack of good testing was and, and maybe how things could have gone differently?
4: Yeah, the testing one is really interesting because the state lab was the only game in town initially. And the state told us that was because CDC was only sending them supplies. Um, and so, again, they made a purchase of supplies in late January enough for about a thousand tests. Um, and so we obtained emails and text messages and, and some text messages from Summit County. They're saying the, t- the state does not have a capacity of 160 tests a day as they're claiming. Uh, the governor claimed on March 5th that the state had that capacity and local public health is saying no. Um, and by mid-March, some agencies are reporting that it's taking 10 days to turn around test results, that there's still delays. I talked to Jill Hunsaker-Ryan about that. She runs the state's health department, which also runs the state's lab.
2: The state lab was not designed to provide all of the laboratory
4: testing in the state for one disease. And so um, what we very quickly tried to do was, um, and the CDC as well, was to help the private sector ramp up testing. All right. So the state lab is for somewhat limited purposes. It's never meant to test thousands and thousands of people. Okay. Uh, once Vale Health switched to private labs, for instance, they went from a 10-day or 7-day turnaround at the state to a 2-day turnaround. Something like a quest. Exactly. Uh-huh.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. CPR's investigative reporter, Ben Marcus, joins us. Uh, he has written a very powerful story called How Colorado Caught COVID-19, and we're talking about his reporting now. So what was the state lab simply hamstrung?
4: I think that you could argue that definitely CDC sent faulty kits. That was a problem. Um, There was no sense of how big the scale of the outbreak was going to be. So how do you, you want? What would you do? You buy thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of test supplies and ended up not needing them. That would be a problem. So to some degree, this event is so unprecedented that it is hard to do. But you know, there were others in the community that were reading what they were seeing in the New York Times and Washington Post and getting genuinely concerned and preparing for the worst.
0: You talked just a moment ago about Governor Polis, uh, that he'd made claims about testing that didn't necessarily line up with what you found internally at the state. And you talked to him for this story. What did he say when you asked him, for
4: instance, about the lost February? So he said that the signals he was getting from President Trump and uh, Anthony Fauci, who's the head of infectious disease at the uh, federal level, was that, hey, there's nothing to worry about. In fact, we found a uh, February 9th meeting in D.C. where Polis attended it and Fauci was there. And he said, we've got this. There's nothing to worry about.
3: And we didn't have any cases. Uh, we we, knew we might see cases, but we, we, uh, you know, we always hope for the best. Um, really, once we got the first diagnosed case March 5th, is really when we we sprung rapidly into action around uh, containment in Colorado and around social distancing.
4: And on February 20th, Polis met donald trump face-to-face in colorado springs and the only thing he mentioned he was on your show and you asked him several times what did you talk about and he said space command getting space command permanently located in colorado and then some small talk so it clearly wasn't at the top of his mind a day before that meeting on february 20th so this would be february 19th jill hunsaker ryan the top public health official in colorado told the board of health was looking like a bad seasonal flu in terms of severity and fatality. So that gives you a sense of what their mindset was in late February.
0: We know that there were some meetings going on uh, at the state, but your story starts with a description of the first known case in Colorado. That was the man who skied in Summit County and then went to Metro Denver to recover. And you describe some pretty remarkable communication problems among the states and counties.
4: Yeah, we found a lot of tension between local public health and the state public health department. Now, it's a distributed public health system, as Sam was saying. Yeah. A lot of power rests at the county level. There are 50 local agencies in Colorado. Some cover multiple counties. These are the boots on the ground. In those first weeks of March, there are many emails about a lack of coordination, uh, not getting returned calls from CDPHE. And around this, this resident in Summit County, it was a non-resident. And so there was a question as to who actually does contact tracing for someone who is a non-resident. Hmm. Is it the county? Is it the state? And the co- So you act- in the end, there was Jefferson County, Summit County, and the state all doing contract tracing at the same time and not really talking to each other. Um,
0: we have just about a minute left, Ben. That w- was isolated to that case, or did those kinds of communication problems persist?
4: So on March 7th, there's an email from El Paso County Public Health, uh, epidemiologist to her bosses. She says, CDPHE has been very demanding in their needs, but has not been able to offer the same service to us. And we found that some of those communications problems were still happening on March 12th in another email that we obtained. And then when I asked Jill Ryan about it, she said, we're working to improve that. So it's not something that is totally done yet.
0: Improvement that will no doubt spell uh, very much how the state moves forward if something like this happens again, or if there are new hotspots.
4: That's exactly right, because it's local public health that will do the contact tracing, community testing, and quarantining.
0: CPR's investigative reporter, Ben Marcus. Colorado Matters continues after a break on CPR News.
3: Listen to CPR News and get the word on what's happening all around the state. And visit denverite.com to get even more news from the Mile High City. Hi, I'm Anna Campbell, editor of Denverite, and you'll find our small but mighty reporting team all over town, bringing you the useful and delightful news you need to live, work, and play in Denver. Get the daily Denverite newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every morning. Sign up at Denverite.com.
0: The U.S. Supreme Court could determine the fate of the Electoral College in oral arguments later this week, which will take place by phone. At stake is whether presidential electors are free to follow their conscience or bound by state law to vote a certain way. This fight started in 2016 with a Colorado elector. CPR's Justice reporter Allison Sherry has been following this case, which isn't always what it seems. And she told me about the faithless elector named in this case.
2: Well, four years ago, Michael Baco was 24 years old. He was a Bernie supporter who was working at John Juice and driving an Uber while finishing grad school. And he told me that he originally ran to be an elector because he thought it would be cool to get his name in the Library of Congress. That was kind of the extent of his thinking at the time. That was it. But during the presidential campaign over the summer between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, Baca said he was alarmed at the things Trump was saying, at the Access Hollywood tapes, and the prospect of him running the country.
0: Okay, so it sounds like that made Baca look at being an elector in a different way.
2: It did. And, you know, through the summer, I think Bacchus started reaching out to other electors he could try to find in other states and talking about the power that they had to choose the president. And the night that Donald Trump won, election night, Bacchus started texting people at three in the morning. And they formed um, a pretty loose movement of, quote, faithless electors that were going to band together and try to choose a compromise candidate. They weren't going to choose Hillary Clinton. They admitted that she lost the election, they weren't going to go that way. But they wanted to choose a compromise candidate so at least the election would go to the House of Representatives.
4: And so this, this whole movement was putting, you know, our country over our party. And we saw there was still one last, there was one last maneuver to make, but, you know, obviously it failed.
2: In the end, almost a dozen people rebelled in the Electoral College votes in December across the country. And that was more than any other election since the early 1800s. But that obviously was not enough to prevent Trump from securing enough Electoral College votes to win.
0: Now, Alison, Hillary Clinton had won Colorado, so uh, presumably Baca's vote would have gone for her. But he didn't. It didn't.
2: No, he didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. And Colorado has a state law that requires the electors to vote for the person, the candidate that the state voted for. So when he refused to vote for Hillary Clinton, he was replaced by the then Secretary of State with an elector who went and cast a vote for Hillary Clinton. So it wasn't hugely dramatic. I mean, it didn't change the outcome of Colorado going for Hillary Clinton in the Electoral College. But what happened was Baca challenged that removal in federal court, saying that the Constitution protects electors' independence to vote how they want. They can't be constrained by a state law. It went up through federal court and the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with him and that the electors do have this free will. The state challenged that decision and now it's in front of the Supreme Court.
0: Are we to assume that Michael Baca is a champion of the Electoral College, which we know there's a lot of debate about right now?
2: Yeah, there is a lot of debate. And actually, he is not a champion of the Electoral College. I don't
4: think 538 Michael Baca's should be the ultimate deciders of the president of the United States. But that's the way our constitution is written. And so if we want to make that change, I, I would I want to be a part of that. And I would like to see that.
2: Baca thinks the Electoral College is totally undemocratic. And the group representing him in front of the U.S. Supreme Court actually campaigns for Electoral College reform to weaken its power to pick the president. And I think Baca thinks his case shows clearly how weak and undemocratic the system can be or could be and that the state laws binding electors to vote for one candidate or the other are ultimately unconstitutional.
0: Ironic that he's going to court to defend himself within a system he actually wants to kind of get rid of.
2: Yeah, I think what he's hoping for is that the Supreme Court enshrines the Electoral College's total freedom to pick the next president in hopes that people will be so concerned that there will be a real push to do away with the Electoral College altogether, or that the Supreme Court just all out tackles the constitutionality of Electoral College, which I have to say I'm not an expert, but seems a little unlikely. But we'll see.
0: Okay, that's one side of the case. On the other side, Colorado's Attorney General Phil Weiser representing the state. What are his arguments?
2: Weiser's arguments are that states ultimately have the right to run their own elections. There are reams of case law already on this. You know, currently there are 32 states that have laws on the books that require the electors to vote for whoever the people voted for. But what's interesting in this is even the states without those laws on the books, a state like South Dakota, they've signed amicus briefs agreeing with Colorado and Weiser on this. I think everybody thinks it could be a slippery slope, that if electors could kind of vote for whoever they wanted, it could go bad.
0: So Wiser wants to keep the Electoral College in place?
2: Well, I asked him this directly, and he wasn't interested in talking to me about weighing in on that. He just says this case is not the platform to have the broader Electoral College debate.
3: The Electoral College as an institution is what we have in our Constitution. It's my job to help make it work. Whether or not there are better systems out there, there are other ways people can debate that or seek to act on it. Right now, though, I'm in the world of living in the system we have and how to make it work.
2: Weiser talks about how scary it would be if electors truly were, quote, faithless, that they could band together and overturn the will of the people after presidential elections. And, you know, that would uproot how elections have worked in this country for more than 200 years.
0: Is this the first time Phil Weiser will argue in front of the Supreme Court?
2: It is, though he has clerked for two Supreme Court justices and he helped with some arguments during the Obama administration when he worked at the Department of Justice. So he's not a total fish out of water here.
0: Uh, What a weird first time, given that the court is holding arguments by conference call right now instead of in person. How's he getting ready for that?
2: Well, he's been listening to them. I mean, this is a really weird time for the U.S. Supreme Court. All last week, they had their first oral arguments on the phone, and Weiser listened to every word of that to try to get cues on... You know, which justice was speaking and how this was all gonna kind of work. Um, so he's listening, he's preparing, he's got moot court via phone with a bunch of his law school friends. And on the day of, I think he's going to try to make it as much like court as possible. He's going to go into his office. He's going to wear a suit and tie. He's going to stand up, even though it's all on the phone. Hmm. And, you know, I think he wants to sort of dress for the for the job that he wants or whatever that saying is. <laughs> um, well, one, thing, one thing he said he's worried about, which is kind of interesting, um, he says that you can unconsciously speed up on the phone when you can't see an audience. You talk faster than when you're talking to someone and you're looking at someone's mouth. So he's been rehearsing uh, pace a little when he delivers.
0: Allison, thanks so much. Thanks, Ryan. CPR's justice reporter, Allison Sherry. She's covering a Colorado case that will be at the U.S. Supreme Court this week around rules that govern the Electoral College. Thanks so much for spending time with us. You can find me on Twitter at CPRWarner. The show is at Colorado Matters. This is CPR News.